If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 49, which can be found on page 50 of your Pew Bible. Jacob has learned to trust in the mercies of God, and now as his life ends, the throne of God fills his view, as we just sung, and he, he prophesies. And we have this wonderful chapter, Genesis 49. How might you summarize the book of Genesis this morning, if you were asked to do that? The book of Genesis covers thousands of years of history, more than any other book in our Bible. It is full of world-shaping events. Of course, there's creation, the flood, the emergence of Abraham, and many other key moments. But how might we bring all those things together? Well, a number of gifted scholars have suggested that Genesis has a key word, a key word, a theme word, we might say. This word occurs over 80 times in the book and is prominent in the most important moments in the book. That word, as some of you may have guessed, is the word blessing, blessing. Genesis begins with God created the world and then blessing it and mankind with it. God's blessing is what makes everything work and flourish. It is very close to the Hebrew word shalom, which means something like wholeness or soundness. I use this word and idea every Sunday when I bless you, saying, may God make his face to shine upon you. That's a benediction, which is just a Latin way of saying a blessing. And God's face shining on you is a very symbolic way of saying, may God bless you richly. Genesis begins with God pouring his blessings all over creation and especially over Adam and Eve. Sadly, the blessing of God that is making everything wonderful is quickly lost. We watch as man through his sin forfeits that blessing and the blessing is partially removed. We now live under a curse. We see it every day and we feel it every day. As we age, we feel the curse pulling our bodies down into death. As we work, we watch as everything we do naturally decays. Everything heads toward disorder. Whether they can name it or not, all people in our culture can sense this curse. They know that something has gone terribly wrong. We all sense intuitively that the story of mankind is a tragedy, a fall from grace. However, there is literally good news. God does not completely remove his blessing from humankind. He continues to preserve the world. And more importantly, he's working to bring a people back to himself, a people who will recover all the blessings of creation and the blessings of a consummate glory. Genesis is a book about that blessing, the covenantal, gracious blessing of God who owes us nothing, but has decided to go after us and love us and bring us home in the end. He loves to bless his people, and Genesis is full of blessing. We could probably go almost anywhere in Genesis to see this, 
But maybe nowhere is the importance of blessing more clearly seen than in the call of Abraham. In chapter 12 of Genesis, God calls Abraham to faith with these promises. God says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When Abraham attempts to offer up Isaac in obedience to God, God's response is to say to Abraham, because you have done this, I will surely bless you. Sarah is told that she will have a child in her old age because God will, quote, bless her. Foreign kings, foreign kings even took to calling Abraham and his children the blessed of the Lord. And when each patriarch dies, they bless the next generation. The covenant of blessing first given to Adam is passed down from one man of faith to another. In our text this morning, Jacob lies dying. He gathers his sons around him and inspired by the Holy Spirit, he blesses them and prophesies of their future. Chapter 49, verse 28 summarizes it well. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Today, we have the wonderful blessing of listening in as Jacob, dying Jacob, led by the spirit, blesses his sons. Would you then please stand as we hear these blessings? We'll be looking together at the almost the whole of the chapter, verses 1 through 27. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together so that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn. My might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hum hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal 
to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulon shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you. By the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we, like those men, are in need of your blessing that we might understand your word and apply it to our lives. And so we pray, bless us now in this time. Open our hearts to receive your word and to be changed by it. Take away the dimness of our sight, the hardness of our hearts, and the distractions of our lives. Do all this that you might bless us, for you have promised to do so in your Son in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The passage before us is an exciting one. If you take a moment to really notice what is happening here, you'll especially, I think, sense that right away. Why do I say that? Well, because in chapter 49, we have the moment when God's grace to the world goes from being a little stream to being a great river. Think for a moment with me. Up until now, each time a man of faith has died, the promise, the grace, the creational blessing has passed down to only one other person, one other family. Noah gave it to Shem, his son, one of his sons. Abraham gave it to Isaac, but not Ishmael. Isaac was forced to give the blessing really only to Jacob and not to Esau. Each of these fathers felt the pain of knowing that only one of their children would follow in their faith. In addition, we might add, one-to-one -one is not 
a good ratio for growth, is it? If God's blessings are supposed to bring multiplication, if God's blessing makes the fish to teem and the flowers to bud, why is grace growing so slowly, one to one? This chapter starts to answer that question. With Jacob, something remarkable happens. All 12 of Jacob's sons are chosen by God. They may have their problems, as we will see in a minute, but none of them are excluded from God's plan of redemption. There are no Ishmael's or Esau's here. Jacob's life has been difficult. However, with that suffering, that wrestling has come a greater blessing. Jacob can now see the promise of a great nation taping, taking form in front of him as God's blessings encompass all 12 of his sons and their families, all of whom are now safely settled in prosperous Egypt under Joseph. This greater blessing, taking in all 12 sons, also comes with prophecy, as you probably noticed Look with me again at verse one. Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather to yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Now, literally in the Hebrew, it says here, what will happen to you in the last days? These are not just blessings, but Jacob is prophesying of what will be, how this will all come about in its fulfillment. This chapter then isn't just what Jacob wants, but what God has revealed to Jacob. For example, Jacob may have wanted to give the throne, the kingly line to Joseph, his, his favorite. But under the spirit and in prophecy, he prophesies that kingship will belong to Judah. We know Jacob especially loves Benjamin as well. But Benjamin's blessing is rather short. Just one verse, verse 27. So these are not the wishes or the prejudices or hopes and dreams of Jacob. But rather, this is a prophetic word from God about the last days. What will be as God consummates and fulfills his purposes. For our study today, I'm not going to go into detail into each word of blessing and prophecy. Rather, I want to focus on what Jacob focused on. Jacob devotes most of his words to three different sons or groups of sons. We'll see first the scattered sons, his three oldest and the prophecies made concerning them. Second of all, we will see the lion king of Judah and then thirdly, lastly, we'll look at the double portion prince that is Joseph, the double portion prince. So first of all, in verses three through seven, see how Jacob um, speaks to what I'm going to call the scattered, his three oldest sons. Now, these three oldest sons are in the plan of God. They are part of God's people. The covenant embraces them but they have a limited role in the future of Israel. Look with me again at these three and why none of them could inherit the firstborn title. 
Jacob begins with Reuben, his literal firstborn son, in verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. However, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So what's going on here? In Genesis 35, you might remember, Reuben had relations with Jacob's concubine, one of Jacob's wives. Culturally, this was probably a way of trying to seize control over the tribe. You might recall that David's rebellious son, Absalom, did something similar when he tried to overthrow his father, David, and end his reign. Now, if you're listening to this and you're saying, is the Bible here approving of men having concubines and men using women as conquests to assert their power? The answer is a strong and definite no. What the Bible does, unlike so many other books, is it allows us to see that these men and women, although they had real faith, were also, unfortunately, people of their age. In our culture, only more recently have we begun, maybe over the last 50, 60 years, to really face the flaws of those in our relatively recent past. Because the Bible glorifies God and not man, the Bible was doing this 4,000 years ago. And so, yes, sadly... The people of the Bible often got caught up in the practices of those around them and were unable because of human sinfulness to fully overcome. Unlike our society, though, even though the sin is not hidden, there is the opportunity to be forgiven. They are not just canceled. They are given the opportunity to repent and be forgiven. Reuben was forgiven. He was forgiven. He was included in the purposes of God. But the sin was so heinous that he could never lead the people of God. For his own sake and for the sake of God's people, the Holy Family, it was better for him not to reign. And Jacob sadly tells him that. Brothers number two and three are a pair. Look at verses five through seven. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Simeon and Levi had a sister named Dinah. Dinah was assaulted and abducted by a local ruler. Now remember, Jacob and his sons are aliens. They're sojourners. They don't own land, and there are no laws to protect them because they don't belong to the clans and towns where they pitch their tents. Simeon and Levi, with no legal recourse, decide to kill the guy who assaulted and was holding their sister captive. However, 
In their rage, they kill not only the man responsible, but the entire village, all the men of the village, and then take the wives, children, and animals captive. Jacob is rightly horrified by this. Even many years later, as he lies dying, some of the animals were taken by the boys, but other animals were just hamstrung, an act of real cruelty to animals that left the animals useless and helpless. Levi and Simeon are sword brothers, and they are not fit to lead the people of God. As the Old Testament unfolds, as you read from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, Jacob's prophecies about these three tribes come true. The tribe of Simeon is absorbed, really, into the tribe of Judah and all but disappears from the record. The Levites are also scattered. Their inheritance in the land is never concentrated in one place, just as Jacob promised. These three, the three oldest sons, who should have been the leaders of the family, become the scattered, the scattered. Now, brothers and sisters, there are so many lessons, I think important lessons from these three men. And first and foremost, we need to see again how God remembers mercy in his judgment. You see that? If you or I were God, we would have gotten rid of these rascals long ago. We wouldn't want their kind in our story. We wouldn't want people like this in our church and yet God includes them. And this is so encouraging. God actually completely restores one of these three brothers. In fact, that res restoration is happening in front of you this morning on the written page. The per person writing this account, the person who wrote Genesis, as you might know, is Moses. And Moses is a Levite. Aaron is a Levite. Later on in the Old Testament, God takes Levi's passionate nature and turns it from fierce anger to real holy zeal. The Levites become known for their zeal for God and his worship. And because of that, they are made the priests of Israel. This week, while I was doing research for the sermon, I came across an article from CCEF, the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, a ministry that does uh, Christian counseling in the church. And it was an article written by a Christian counselor for women, for women in the church who had had an abortion. The counselor was concerned that women in the church who have had an abortion find it difficult to believe that God could ever forgive them for what they have done. I was greatly encouraged when, in the article, the counselor turned to this story, to the story of Levi, and began to share with these women this wonderful tale of redemption and restoration. But many of us feel that way. Men and women, we feel that things in our past can never be forgiven. But that is not what the Bible teaches that is what Satan whispers in your ear. He wants to keep you there in your shame because shamed people are so easy to manipulate and abuse and make miserable. But while Satan whispers, 
God shouts another message from the Bible. Yes, we might live with some hard realities because of former serious sins. But God's grace is greater than all our sin. And God has filled his Bible with scoundrels to prove it. Levi was told, you did this and there will be consequences. You will be scattered. But then years later, God said to the Levites, yes, you're going to be scattered, but I will be your portion. I will be your inheritance. You will experience unusual blessing and be Israel's priests. So first we see the scattered, the tragedy of these three older sons. And yet in the tragedy, the amazing grace of God. Second of all, though, we are shown the true and real Lion King, a Lion of Judah in verses 8 through 12. Look with me again at those verses, and I'll go verse by verse now through this amazing prophecy of the Messiah and of Judah's line. Verse 8 says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. This whole dying blessing, the whole chapter really, takes the form of poetry. In your Bible, you will probably see that the text is laid out differently to show you that this is poetry. It's usually centered to let you know that it's poetic. And as in all good poetry, Jacob is using pictures, symbols, rhythm, and rhyme. Judah, the word Judah in Hebrew is almost identical to the word praise and the word for hand. So Jacob says in verse 8, your brothers will Judah you and your Judah will be on the neck of your enemies. That's how it would sound in Hebrew. Judah will destroy his enemies and his brothers will bow down before him. To convey this further, the spirit leads Jacob to a picture, a picture, a lion king. Look at verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. Lions were the alpha predators in Jacob's world. When a lion takes a prey, it drags that prey back to its den or it eats the animal on the spot. Unlike smaller animals or birds, No one can shoo the lion away from the prey. No animal dares interrupt the lion as it crouches over its prey. Now at this point, Jacob's prophecy goes from poetic and and picturesque to being very specific and very messianic. Look at verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, Until we literally could translate here until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Here, Jacob predicts an eternal dynasty, an everlasting kingdom given to Judah that will include peoples, meaning the nations, the Gentiles. The dynasty will culminate in a singular king, the one to whom tribute is due or worship is due and the obedience of the nations will belong to him singular. Solomon, 
great King Solomon, knowing this prophecy, made a great throne for himself and carved more than a dozen lions around the throne and on it. But the prophecy is not fulfilled in David or Solomon. In fact, we know from historical finds like the Dead Sea Scrolls that the Jews hundreds of years before Jesus was born already understood and knew that this was a messianic passage. Jacob clearly identifies a person singular in Judah, a singular person who will be the fulfillment of all these things. In Revelation 5, verse 5, that Elder Boyajan read earlier, Jesus is presented to us as the Lion of Judah. Jacob here, you see, you see what's happening? He sees the day of Christ. He sees the day of Christ and he rejoices to see it. Remember how this prophecy began. Jacob said to his sons in the verse one, I will show you what will happen in the last days. And remember how the New Testament again and again, using this same phrase, tells us that we are living now in the last days, the days of the messianic lion king. But notice this lion, this lion king is also a lamb, a lamb slain, a king of glory and a king of love and beauty. Jacob goes on. Look at verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choicest vine. He's washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Jacob uses here the image of a farmer who is so successful, he ties his donkey to his best vines and just lets them eat. In fact, there's so much wine, there's so much wine that he even washes his clothes in wine instead of dirty wash water. He is full of health with dark eyes and white teeth, all signs and symbols of health and prosperity and glory. Reading this, we need to remember, brothers and sisters, how often Jesus compared himself and his kingdom to the farmer. Do you remember that? He hailed the mustard seed and spoke of his sowing of seed. His first major miracle was to make an enormous, almost really a ridiculous amount of wine. This is also the beginning of another prophecy taken up later by the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This prophecy really deserves its own sermon or a series of sermons. But for today, just remember, the lion is also a lamb. Yes, he's a lion. He is terrible in wrath, zeal, and judgment. Samuel Rutherford, a Scottish Puritan, once said 
that if the people of the world would listen closely, if they could just be quiet for a few moments, you can hear his footsteps running up behind you. He's rushing up like a lion behind the world, coming up behind for judgment, like a lion on its prey. If you listen, you can hear your own heart this morning condemning you. You can feel the reality of judgment, and every day you can see a world ripe for judgment. He is a lion. He is a lion. C.S. Lewis wrote so wonderfully, he is good, but he is not safe, and he is not a tame lion after all. And yet at the very time, he, same time, he is a lamb. He's the bringer of wine. He's the kind of person that would make an enormous amount of wine for a wedding he is at. Every communion, we are reminded of Jesus' words, the Last Supper. As they took the wine, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And Revelation shows us a host of people. John shows us a host of people who have what? They've washed their garments white in the wine blood of the Lamb. He is also a farmer, a farmer who attaches us to his vine, doesn't he? Grafting us in and makes us bear much fruit. The ancient church fathers love that picture, that verse here of the farmer attaching the donkeys to the vine. And they tell us that the donkeys are us. It's the nations that are being grafted into the vine, drinking deeply of Christ and all his bounty. And all the while he does this, all the while he is the lion, the lamb, and the farmer, he is altogether lovely. You know, if you were to today to gather up the most beautiful music in the world, the most beautiful paintings, the most lovely and enduring buildings, many, not all, of course, but many, would be explicitly dedicated to Shiloh, to the Messiah, to Jesus. That is no accident. He is altogether lovely. This is Judah's lion king. So we've seen the scattered who receive grace and are in God's people despite their sins. We see the lion king. Lastly, thirdly, Jacob devotes time to the double portion prince. The double portion prince in verses 22 through 26. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in Hebrew... There's a word for a king, and there's a word for a prince. Joseph here is a prince. The final reign, the kingship, is given to Judah. But Joseph will be chief among his brothers. To get at this, the spirit once again leads Jacob to use poetry and imagery. Look at verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring, his branches run over the wall. Think here of Psalm 1, right? The righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water. In other words, Joseph doesn't fear the famine or drought because the stream feeds his vine and he overcomes all the walls and breaks all his boundaries. He outgrows his houses and his barns. He is bursting with produce and plenty. He also overcomes his enemies, his own brothers 
and slavery and Potiphar's wife, they all tried to destroy him. So verse 23, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. How did this happen? How did Joseph thrive despite all this opposition? Jacob gives the glory to God. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. We might get into this more in our Zoom discussion tonight, but Jacob mentions God here as Joseph's shepherd and rock. If you think back through the story of Jacob for a moment, you'll realize quickly that these are not accidental symbols. Jacob sets up stones. Do you remember? He sets up stones when God meets with him on several occasions. We find Jacob setting up stones in memory of what God has done. But here, Jacob says, God will be the stone of Joseph. Jacob also, remember, is a shepherd. That's how he made his life. That's what he did when he met his wife. She was a shepherd, too. And here he promises Joseph, God will be your shepherd, the shepherd of Joseph. Jacob is taking, you see, from his own life, his own story under the inspiration of the spirit. And he's blessing Joseph, who he sees as his truest heir, his firstborn son. This will result in huge prosperity and advancement for Joseph's tribe. Verse 25 gets at the enormity of the blessing. The God of your father will help you by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouch beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. Again, this is the language of Genesis, isn't it? It's creational language. God made the heavens above and the earth beneath. And says Jacob, all these things will work together for Joseph. The whole blessing, and it's a wonderful one, is then finally sealed in verse 26. The blessings of your father, Joseph, are mighty beyond even the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. In other words, Jacob's blessing on Joseph will go beyond, beyond what Isaac experienced or Jacob experienced. They will multiply and be very great. And these blessings are like the everlasting hills, always in scripture. The hills are a symbol of what is unshakable, unchangeable. Now, if you know a little bit about the Old Testament, you know how this prophecy came true. Joseph has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Together, they become northern Israel with a capital in Samaria. In fact, for much of the Old Testament, there's a tension, if you go back and read, between Joseph's son Ephraim and Judah, because both tribes become so incredibly dominant. By the time of the prophets, the time of men like Isaiah, the term Israel or Jacob is almost synonymous with the tribe of Ephraim. Not long ago, we studied the book of Isaiah together. In that book, Isaiah speaks out against Ephraim, who he calls Israel. 
He predicts their captivity and ruin because of their rebellion against Judah's king, more importantly, because of their idolatry. But in the midst of that prophecy, you might remember, God says to Ephraim, it's very specifically said to Ephraim, who now represents really all the northern tribes because of his dominance. He says to Ephraim, I will not give you up. Despite everything you've done, I will not give you up. I'm still your rock and I'm still your shepherd. Jacob loved Joseph In God's mercy, Joseph was blessed above his brothers. In fact, in chapter 48, Jacob actually takes Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and takes them and adopts them as his own son by taking his two grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim, Joseph's two boys, and making them his sons. The sons receive, Joseph receives a double portion. And so he is the double portion prince. The double portion was always in the ancient world reserved for the firstborn, the heir. And in the end, by God's decree, Joseph and his heirs are to have this double blessing, eternal as the hills. But the Messiah will not come here. Again, God in his sovereignty will alone choose the path of the Messiah. Well, step back with me for a moment. We've seen the scattered but forgiven brothers. We've seen the Lion King of Judah, and we've seen the doubly blessed Prince Joseph. Not to overuse the word, but what a blessing. What a a blessed chapter. Jacob is dying. In his dying, he sees and knows that God will bless him beyond his wildest dreams. In his son Judah, he sees the day of Christ and rejoices to see it. But what about us? Is there a blessing for us? One of the first things Jesus did when he began his ministry was to choose 12 men to be his apostles. The number was not accidental. And the significance of the number was not lost on those men or Jesus' other followers. In fact, when one of the 12 fell away, Judas, the other 11, you might recall from Acts, quickly chose a 12th member. They knew that they had to be 12. Why? Because they knew what it meant. They knew that Jesus was a new Jacob, forming a new Israel around himself and in himself. Jesus wasn't just saving random people. He was forming a new family of promise. And this means that we are the spiritual children of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so important for your Christian life, brothers and sisters, that you get this point. I hope you have. Jesus did not just save us. He did that, of course. But that is just the beginning of what he accomplished. After saving us from our sin, he went further, much further. He has adopted us into his family so that now, right now, you are not just miserable sinners who've been saved. We are that, but we are more. We are now the children of God. First John 3, 1. See what kind of love our father 
better than Jacob, has given to us. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. And we are heirs with Christ, Romans 8 says. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Listen to this familiar passage from Ephesians 1.3. But as you do, remember, and maybe you'll notice this for the first time, listen to it in the context of what you've been hearing in Genesis and from Jacob. Because this is the context in which Paul actually wrote it. Paul breathed the Old Testament. Listen to how Paul, under the Spirit, wrote to the Ephesian church. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We hear the word blessing and we shrug our shoulders. No big deal. Did someone sneeze? We ask. But Paul didn't think that way. He knew that in the last days, Jacob, his father, had promised an outpouring of blessing on the world. He knew that it was happening, that it has happened right now through Christ. And in Christ, we have received a blessing greater than any other. So today, believer, you share in a deathbed blessing, just like these 12 men. Your dying Lord has given you his last will and testament. We call it the New Testament in his blood. With his blood, he has written your blessing and your future, and no amount of time can wipe it away. Here is your dying blessing. On his deathbed, on his cross, your Jacob said, it is finished. Can you hear that? If you can... If you understand that you stand under a blessing that dwarfs any that those 12 men received that day, then the allurement of sin in your life will be broken. Trials in your life will be hard, but they'll be bearable. Joy will always win out in the end because blessing is what we lost and it's all that we really need. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you that though we forfeited every blessing and the sunshine of your face in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the very words it is finished, the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have come upon us and blessings greater and richer and fuller than they can imagine. And so we, like John, can stop weeping because we have a great lion, we have a lamb, and we have hope. Fill your people with the joy of the blessing that is theirs this morning. Make them so aware of what they have in Christ and of who they are in Christ, that temptation will lose its power this week, that their trials will be bearable, that they will be able to rejoice and look with hope to our last days, the days of your appearing. Fill us with this confidence, this hope. Help us to know how blessed we truly are. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, the Lion of Judah. Amen.